Welcome to the final draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Tilly Lawless. The final draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from taboo authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I am recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty was never made in Australia. Tilly Lawless is a queer Sydney-based sex worker who utilises her online platform to speak about her personal experiences within the sex industry in an attempt to shine a light on the everyday stigma that sex workers come up against. She's joining us today. Her debut novel is Nothing But My Body. Nothing But My Body is a journey through eight days in the life of a young queer sex worker. The narrator explores her world and confronts the versions of herself seen through the eyes of clients, friends and lovers, at all times challenging and railing against the strictures of labels and reductive stereotypes. Nothing But My Body confronts the lows we can feel navigating the world while celebrating the constancy of friendships and the steady community they offer against a tide of cruelty. Join me as we discover Tilly Lawless's Nothing But My Body. It's my great pleasure today to introduce you to a new Australian book. Uh, that has just released. It's always really cool when I can talk to an author uh, the week that their book releases. This is a really hard time for book releases as well. So I want to introduce you to Tilly Lawless. Tilly, welcome to Final Draft. And of course, you are here because you have an extraordinary debut out. It's called Nothing But My Body. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining in. Um, This has been such an interesting experience reading this book. It's a Mm. very embodied book and I I felt very much the that energy and and the lyricism of, of the way you create these descriptions it's it's a kind of diary a week in the life of your protagonist a queer sex worker and it goes into and across the relationships in her life most particularly her relationship with herself within her mm-hmm. own body and as we get started I thought um, I want to put a language warning and a content warning on our chat. There will be discussion of sex. There may be some language that people would consider harsh. So um, for anyone who thinks that they maybe don't want to hear that, they can tune out. But let's start. Um, And the place I wanted to start, in nothing but my body, you do take us around the world. And it's Mm. in a club in Berlin where your protagonist is considering the stigma that's placed on her as being queer, being a sex worker, And being a person who wants to have children, and she says, I hope that they are born into a kinder world that my words have helped create. Now, this this kind of felt to me like a beautiful heart to the book. Can you tell me about that, about the power of writing and the power of words in creating a better world? Yeah, I think one of the most wonderful things that has come from having the platform I've had and be um, is the feedback I have from people when they say, like, I get a lot of messages from sex workers who say, like, oh, you know, I felt uh, ashamed about my work for so long and, like, reading your words made me feel, like, not alone or, like, or, you know, um, my mum found out about my work and wasn't okay with it but then I showed her your writing and it helped her understand it and come round to it and, like, I think it is so such a privilege I feel to be able to change people's lives on sort of like an individual level and like help their lives in some way with words and I feel like 
so much of what we focus on is often like wider legislative change and obviously like that is so so vital in like activism and also you know changing people's lives for the better but like the thing that I've yeah really felt I feel like if I have like brought about a positive impact on one person's life like that's all you can really ask for in life with your writing and so um yeah it's a really special thing to me that my words have impacted so many people yeah so we're talking about your novel or your your book. Do you, are you describing it as a novel, autofiction? How are you describing it? Oh right, okay. So actually, just then I was talking about my Instagram because that, I was. That's thinking, what I was. That's what I was oh, wondering. Yeah. And, and if you could, could you could you talk about what it's like working across different platforms and and the way those platforms of say a novel versus working like online writing how yeah. they how they are different for you. So for me, it's hard to talk about. I talk about them quite interchangeably because for me, a lot of the audience of my book is the audience I've already had with my Instagram. So these are people that I already know and have kind of like developed a relationship with. So I think of my readership as I know, obviously, with my book, I will probably get people read it who have never read my Instagram. But I think of my readership as the community I've built online for like seven years of running an Instagram the way I have. Um so that that's why that's why I was speaking to that. I in regards to the book, it's the publisher and the publisher has called it autofiction, which is a phrase I wasn't familiar familiar with before. Like I was just referring to it as semi-autobiographical fiction. Um, because to me, I had drawn from my life to create a fictional narrative. And um I think similarly to I was actually speaking to someone the other day and they said that Helen Garner wrote Monkey Grip by starting with diary entries that she'd written in her own life and then expanding that into a whole book. And that's very much what I did in that my Instagram is an online diary. And so, you know, I took parts of my Instagram from significant times in my life and then created whole chapters of fiction from that. So, yeah. Did that answer your question? It did. Are you are you prepared? So, I mean, the book has come out this week. We're speaking three days after it released um, into a into a world that is probably not your usual book release. Have you had any experience of new readers? Are you prepared for the experience of new, new readers? Like what are you looking for there? I've had a lot of people yeah, who already follow me contact me saying they love it. I haven't really thought about the wider I, I don't I don't Google myself and like I haven't been engaging in reviews and things like that. I always deliberately stay away from that kind of stuff. So I am kind of a little bit of a little bit isolated in that the only way to reach me is as a person who doesn't know me is via Instagram. So it's hard for me to differentiate whether these people reaching me via Instagram are people who have just found my work or people who have followed me for a long time. You know, they, they kind of become one and the same to me. I'm really excited for you to, when we can get kind of get out of lockdown and hopefully you'll get a like a live book launch and and meet some of yeah. those readers because I mean I I wasn't familiar with your writing until I got my copy of Nothing But My Body and it's I mean it's a really exciting book to discover and I want to I want to look at that relationship or the relationship that I developed with the book as I was reading it because I feel like mm. I've lived in words a lot recently we're talking mm. about words you know Sydney we're locked down I know you're locked down to yeah. Nothing but my body, though. It highlighted for me both the different relationship that I have with my body in these circumstances and the ways that we, we actually don't even relate to our bodies typically as honestly as your protagonist does. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask about that was, I mean, how did you find 
the words? How did you find these words to cultivate and describe that relationship with your body? Oh, I mean, I've been writing for such a long time, like since I was like, you know, I've been writing stories since I was six years old. So I feel like I've just developed like quite a distinct writing style over, you know, 20 something years. Um, My writing has always been really centered in the body. I think because for me personally, I find that a lot of emotions I feel first in the body. Like if I'm anxious, like I get a sick stomach or like whatever. And I think um, also it's been a reaction to the fact that I think we're taught to value like cerebral things more and dismiss um, the body as like um, as somehow lesser than what goes on in our minds. So for me, it's also been really important to, I, I value my body equally as I do my mind, you know? And so it's been really, imp- and also to be honest, like a lot of, sex worker rights discourse has focused on the, um, for example, emotional labour parts of our work rather than the physical labour parts of our work because um, a lot of sex workers have felt our work is dismissed as work. And so for me, I also wanted to recenter writing about sex work in the body because yeah, for me, yes, it's physical labour, but physical labour isn't less uh, than like emotional and intellectual labour, you know? Yeah. I mentioned kind of like how reading this book in lockdown has highlighted for me like my relationship with my body and the changing relationship that I've had during this time. You know, for instance, like I've moved from a very kind of movement-based, more physical kind of work to sitting at a desk. Mm. Um, when, we, when we're told we can only do so much exercise in the day, we, we suddenly start to think about how we do that and what that looks like. Have you felt a changing relationship in this kind of lockdown time that um, – that's you know kind of impacted you this lockdown time no different to like in terms of my body no different to last year's lockdown Mm. I think this this lockdown it has been more difficult emotionally because of the frustration and despair I feel about what I see as the government's failure you know like I very much think this lockdown is a result of a flawed like vaccine rollout so it's been frustrating more on an emotional level I feel like physically I've adapted very much to being at home in the way I was last year and one of the results of course like this is and this has been fairly consistent throughout is living in a world of disembodied experiences it's not just exclusively lockdown you know our we we live in some ways through our social media your protagonist relies like so many of us on social media to connect to maintain connections with people who are far away but like you got me thinking about how we can see people on social media we can even kind of get a sense of their spirit in their words and I think very much your Mm -hmm. protagonist gets that sense of what's happening in people's lives and a little bit of, of who they are but we're physically separated I wondered how you felt I mean especially because Instagram is such a huge platform for you how you felt about social media and those disembodied connections that we we can often maintain like we can have relationships with people that we'll never meet um face to face yeah I think that the pandemic last year really made me rethink um online relationships in that I had before really seen that online spaces could be equal to physical spaces and I think lockdown last year and being deprived of physical contact with friends made me realize that online space could never compare to physical space Mm. and that was part of 
what has made me so glad to have a book come out in hard copy because I think and I think it wasn't I think it wasn't just me I think like a lot of queer people I know uh really realize the importance of you know uh, clubs and bars and things where you could actually meet up and feel like you were a part of a whole rather than just an individual and so yeah the pandemic has 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 made me sure grateful for the internet in that I've been able to keep in contact with friends I can't see overseas but it is also um it is also shown innate flaws in online um online interaction versus in-person interaction like obviously there's so much so much more room for um misunderstanding each other online and like not picking up tone and also there's also I think also sometimes when you're only interacting with people online it can depress you because you actually feel like a disconnect because there's not the in-person thing so really it's just being more online has made me uh even more impatient to be able to be in person with people and I think that probably comes across a lot in the book because like I focus on the character like mourning the loss of physical contact Mm. yeah and I'm sorry if this seems like a a naive question but I know that one one big um discussion that is particularly happening at the moment like Sydney is now going through its you know it's kind of it's longest seemingly harshest lockdown and there is a huge disjuncture between those who can and those who can't work online mm. those who can't safely socially distance in their house and those who who need to physically be in a job is is sex work the sort of work that can have any kind of online component um Yes, it, it obviously can. Like, if you want to, if you want to move to online sex work, obviously there are barriers to that. Not all sex workers can put their legal ID with their work. Um, you may not have the tech to do online sex work. It also takes a really long time to build a platform. I last year went to online sex work when the lockdown happened, and I hated it so fucking much, so much. Like, I find, as I said, I don't find any one of the things I like about my work is feeling a connection with a stranger. I don't find that online at all when I'm, you know, masturbating for a man in another country over, like, a screen. I hate that shit. Um, and it actually really, really ruined my relationship with um, masturbation and selfies, like things that have been quite personal and things I enjoyed before. Like, put it this way, I didn't masturbate for five months after doing OnlyFans. So this year when lockdown happened, I was, like, I, I mainly do brothel work and brothels are obviously closed in lockdown. And I was like, there's no way I'm going back to online work. Like, I can't do it mental health wise. So this year I'm actually on Centrelink because I'm unable to work. So I am in one of those, I am one of those people who, you know, does in-person physical labor and can't do that at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Now I've seen in your interviews and your writing, you confront the question or you're often confronted with questions around sex work and whether it's exploitative or empowering and you argue for both a deeper nuance the mm-hmm. deeper than those two binaries um them failing to encapsulate it as well as kind of there's a reductive devaluing notion that that places mm-hmm. on an individual in nothing but my body you describe um in a scene that disrespect is varied and alien in its individual manifestation relating to sort of, I guess, both physical and and verbal disrespect there. Can we talk about alienation and the need that people have to other sex work as a profession? Like this, the sense of othering it and creating a, I I guess, separating it from from otherwise a working economy. 
totally. I mean, that quote specifically was actually just a Tolstoy reference that I'd like rephrase. Mm. I think he has like a quote that's like, all happy families are the same in their happiness, all unhappy families are like different. So I was just. Oh, cool. That <laughs> is. Okay. Like, I wondered. Um, I, I really like your version of it. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I've actually like rephrased like a lot of authors and things, and I've always wondered like, am I the only person who's going to pick up this reference, or is it like obvious? Like, I've got a Jane Austen reference that I rewrote as well. Um, but yeah, in terms of wait, sorry, what was it? Your question again in regards to alienation around around both alienation, the mm-hmm. alienation that perhaps you're you're describing in in that sort mm-hmm. of reframing of the quote, but also the need or, or what you perceive people's need is to other sex work as a profession. Yeah, people's need to other sex work as a profession. I, that's such an interesting question because I don't know if they haven't... I guess people other are so much, um, firstly because a lot of people are threatened by the idea of sex work i think especially because um sex work is a job that has allowed uh women that are seen as undesirable whether they're like working class whether they're queer whether they're migrant women whether they're black whether they're trans it's allowed women like that to um transcend class by gaining financial stability and so i think that's something that threatens people and also it's about you know like women profiting of um, sexuality, which is meant to just sort of be like tied to and controlled by one man, their partner. So I think that's something that's really threatening that make people that make people other it um, is the kind of potential for challenging social mores that it has. But I think also a lot of people other it without. They just other it because their parents have othered it or because society has othered it. Like I don't think they've actually like thought about or like deliberately or consciously othered it. It's just it's just sort of a a chain of culture. And it kind of this links back to like what, you know, our first question when I was talking about, you know, we're talking about changing people's minds through writing. And like I always think that like a lot of this change is like very slow generational change when it comes to stigma which is why it's so important to change one person's mind because then they slowly change their friends' and their children's minds about things. Um, so, yeah, this othering also also comes about because a lot of people haven't met a sex worker or they don't know that they've met a sex worker because a lot of sex workers aren't out or open about their work because of, you know, circumstances surrounding that. So I think that the invisibility of sex work has... Um, fed into sort of like a continuation of that othering, you know? Like I, I don't know if it's so much that people have like a need to other it or just they haven't considered why they other it, you know? Yeah, we've got we, – we have kind of a cultural moray that – as, yeah. as long as yeah. it's not – as long as it's unchallenged and as long as, you know, people perhaps even don't even – perceive it one of the I guess one of the functions of privilege is that you get to ignore a bunch of stuff and you yeah. you don't have to consider it so you'll you never challenge it and and nothing changes mm. a lot of the discussion also seems to hinge on ideas of the economy and haven't we all haven't we all kind of become um you know little pocket experts on the economy over the last 18 months because we've been confronted with so many changes in it but you know, ideas of economy and what is legitimate and what is not legitimate in an economy. Um, You describe in Nothing But My Body men who approach sex workers with this seeming kind of shame, like they're even though they're they're accessing 
um, a, a service. You know, if we talk about mm. this as a job, they're accessing a service, but they won't even look at the sex worker that they're mm. visiting. You also describe people who will use sex to gain status, you know, based on who they fuck, but mm. um, still see the idea that you would fuck for money as somehow shameful. And that got me wondering, like, are we are we somehow dissociated from our bodies and the ways that they participate in an economy? Because, I mean, all of, like, even mm. if you sit at a desk, actually, having sat at a desk for the last two weeks, I feel like it can take more of a physical toll on your body than most active work. Like, you're just sitting mm. in one. But are we so dissociated that we don't know our bodies participate in the economy? Or is it that, like, economy, in scare quotes, is not really the way to think about our bodies? <laughs> That's actually such an interesting question, and I have no idea how to answer that at this moment. I would have to go away and think about it. Is it a little bit of both? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I 100%, 100% relate to you that, like, sitting in an office, I mean, not that I've been sitting in the office, but obviously I've been home for weeks, like, not working, and, like, my back is sore than it ever has been just from, like, sitting in a fucking chair watching stuff on my laptop. So, yeah, obviously office work takes a toll on the body as well. It's really, it's really strange though, because we, we have no problem. It seems, you know, like uh, there are, you know, entire shows dedicated to sports and mm. invariably they will reach discussions around when a, in a contact sport, you know, when a, a sports person's working life is over because of injury. Yeah. Um, you know, we have, we have no um, sort of shame around, the idea that you might need workers' comp if you're injured on the job. Like, we, we do understand that our bodies participate in the economy, but it, was just, it just really struck me as interesting that for the particular profession that you're writing about, we seem to kind of want to push it away and say, it's look, it's, because not, it's of, not legitimate. Like people, totally. It's because people don't just view sex as something physical. People mm. like to project their own ideas onto sex as something moral or something spiritual mm. or something emotional. And so people can't think of sex work as purely physical labor like they can with athletics or, um, or you know, stacking shelves or like, you know, other kinds of physical labor because their own concept of sex is, is it's something that transcends the physical, yeah. which it isn't. It can transcend the physical. Like you, you can obviously have emotional and spiritual sex, but sex by itself is not innately anything other than a physical act. Yeah. Like, yeah. You just got me thinking so much about how, like, the hypocrisy of that is galling because people who will say that, that it transcends will still potentially mm. um, gain cachet from the fact that they've they've had sex or they've been in a relationship with someone who has status. And I think what was yeah. what did I write in my notes? I love this, but I couldn't work it in. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ungain in an ungainly way shoehorn yeah. it. Um, <laughs> I used I wrote for myself the phrase, and I knew I wouldn't actually understand it. Um, Star fuckers and reflected glory, like just this idea mm. that somehow, somehow, who we have had sex with, like, might give us status. But then, then also, um, yeah, I've completely lost my thread looking for. I mean, that's that all good, but I can jump off from what you were yeah. saying because I think about I think about this a lot because you know, like, obviously, like people say it's not okay to have sex for money, but I'm like, what about all the people who have sex for you know, for example, as you said, social cachet? Like, they have sex for a photo shoot or they have sex to get free entry to a club or like you know that's all sex for exchange like or you know people have sex for emotional stability or you know there's that meme that like went viral of like you know people um having sex to get a text from the text man in the morning you know like ha having sex to have to have someone 
say good morning to them over text you know like it's like what every everyone has sex for like all sorts of different reasons mm. outside of the physical so why is money the one that's not mm. okay when everything else is you know yeah. Yeah. and it's i mean this is what is so cool about nothing but my body i i feel like i've filtered so much of this interview and my questions based around my response to the book and how it's got me thinking about my life and i don't want to give short shrift to the incredible achievement of of nothing but my body but that's that's incredible when a book can really get you thinking and and relating in such a way um which is just it, it's it's really wonderful like you know it's it's awesome to read a story and escape a little bit but then mm. to this this book does the exact opposite it didn't give me any space to escape and really really got me thinking which is just cool i'm glad because that's that's what i wanted it to do i wanted the reader to feel that they were almost in their own head and like processing things like so i'm glad that's that it immersed you like that <laughs> <laughs> now, another quote, because I just can't help it. Nothing But My Body is also beautiful. It's a lyrical book. There are so many quotable moments. And I, I really thought this might be a nice spot for us to kind of finish up on. In the book, you say, because friendships are the real romances in life. And I think, I hope that many of us are realizing this as we connect, you know, in whatever ways we are connecting across lockdown. But can you tell me about what you meant by that particular quote? Yeah, I mean, I just think that we set up we so I, I see this with so many of my straight friends in particular that they are so distressed about this concept of like being alone. They're like, I need to get a boyfriend so I'm not I'm not alone in my old age. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, and the, in your old age, I'm still going to be there. You know, mm. like for me, like uh, my longest relationships in my life have been with friends. Like I have friends that I've been friends with since I was five years old. You know, that's like twenty something years of friendship, and. I really feel like this focus that we put on, on like creating this like nuclear romantic relationship is firstly so unhealthy because you should never have all your eggs in one basket. But secondly, just constantly disproved. It's like at the end of the day, like who who's there when you break up with your partner, your friends are there. Like, and I just really feel like they're the relationships that we should be, should be nurturing. Mm. And I feel like, I don't know. Like I, I also, I also look at it and I'm like, what, what's the difference with a romantic partner anyway? Like you have sex with them, and you like you turn inwards. You know, like you become insular with each other. And like I don't think that like insularity is like helpful anyway. So for me, I'm like, I don't get anything from a romantic partner that I got don't get from friends besides sex. And like if I can have my sexual needs met otherwise, like really friendships are the superior. A superior relationship as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I think also friends often treat each other a lot better than romantic partners do. I think romantic partners is sort of like this level of intimacy or that comes with being sexual that allows romantic partners to treat each other with a disregard that I never feel in my friendships. Like I always feel like it's complete respect and consideration in my friendships. I absolutely also got in the book that your protagonist has I guess a, a a troubled or at least not a, a linear relationship with this idea of romance. There are times mm. when um, your protagonist kind of questions what romance is, how they feel about romance. What what does what does romance mean to you, and how is it is it something separate in different relationships? Yeah, I mean, solve that romance. one for us because none of us know what romance is. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. No, I mean, usually, usually I would be like. 
I used to be like, I used to be like, yeah, fuck romance, because I would have thought of it as, you know, the kind of traditional sense of romance, which is like with one partner in an insular relationship, as I was saying. And like, I am still very much ugh, about that. But um, when I think of like romance as something more broader, like uh, sentimentality and intimacy and like demonstrations of love and affection, I, I am very much for that kind of romance in my friendship. Mm. Um, I do do big gestures of love with friends and yeah, so I, so now I'm, you know, I'm like, I don't actually think it's romance that's the issue. I think it's um, romantic relationships where you cut off the rest of the world just for the two of you that I don't like. Yeah. Being able to, being able to challenge spaces where you might be afraid, like opening up to someone, being able to do things that might feel scary for you to, to increase that intimacy in the relationship is is so wonderful and giant teddy bears holding hearts are trigger warnings that's maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a takeaway yeah yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> tilly thank you thank you so much thank you for indulging my questions which in a book like nothing but my body i've already acknowledged are inevitably filtered through my reading experience it's been wonderful i am speaking with tilly lawless and nothing but my body is her debut novel um it's I, 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 how can I say it's it's an absolutely wonderful read and so much for right now in, in any other way. Thank you for coming on. It was absolutely my pleasure. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day in lockdown. <laughs> Thank you. That was probably my, my, um, my OTT, like kind of radio end. But, yeah, it was just such a blast. And I, I, I felt like I had to acknowledge the, my, my space in the reading of it because it is that sort of book, like it's – it's it's cool to talk about a book that has like a narrative thread and you can mm. you can say spoiler warning and things like that but when a book resonates it's really hard to do an interview and pull yourself out of it so mm. no i i will it was a personal book so mm. i i like that people having personal readings of it so like it didn't um, i wasn't expecting you to come in with like some sort of like objective view mm. um so i I also really like that you acknowledge that it was coming from you because, you know, I, I think it's silly when interviewers pretend to be objective because at the end of the day, as you said, any questions you're going to pick are going to come from like how the book spoke to you. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really like, I mean, there's probably a whole other discussion we could have about how, mm. uh, how arts journalism works and I would, I'm not a very good, I wouldn't call myself a critic. I wouldn't say I would make a very mm. good critic because I, th- I, I, I really feel like critics are never, very good at acknowledging what they brought to oh, a shared experience yeah. of art. Critics try and pretend to be objective, mm. but like it's like you're not. I don't know. I've, I've I could rant about this too because like I've been thinking that like I've been thinking about this a lot. But I I think can we even can we even critique art? You know, mm. like it's so. And I've been thinking about it a lot with like award ceremonies and things like that. I'm like you know we look at like Oscars so white or whatever, and like we know the reason why so many white actors win Oscars is because obviously the judging panel is largely white. But I'm like at the end of the day, can we actually change that? Because any even if we change the judging panel, the winners are still going to be reflective of what that judging panel is. Mm. And like, I'm like, at the end of the day, also, can you even judge something that's so as, um, so personal as art? You know what I mean? Like, it makes sense to me to critique, like, a critique of food delivery because you can say, like, did it arrive on time? Was it, like, still hot when it arrived? Was it what I ordered? But, like, when it comes down to art, it's like you don't have those categories, so how can you possibly critique it, you know, in an actual objective way? It strikes me. It strikes me what you're saying there. There's a little bit of overlap um, around what we have been talking about. Like we have this 
we have this fear of acknowledging things when they get too intimate, when they get too close. So, I mean, we, there's, mm. there's this sort of fallacy of criticism that it can be, that it can be objective and, I'm much more, and I mean, especially God, especially in Australia at the moment. Like, if you want to, if you want to talk about books in any sort of complete way, you are going to be speaking. Especially if you're a white cis guy, you are yeah. going to be speaking, hopefully in the main, to authors that have a very different lived experience. And if you can't at least acknowledge that you're coming into that, um, you know, from a different position. Mm. There's no point. Like, there's really, there's really no point. You might as well just say, "Here is my platform. Can you just talk for a little bit? Because anything I say is is not going to be useful." Um, mm. But yeah, yeah. Thanks. That was a cool little addendum to the yeah, discussion. Yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome to include that in if you want. I don't know that's, if you already stopped recording. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I keep I keep recording because you never know when there's going to be little bits of gold, and that that's probably going to be that'll make um that that might make the extras on the podcast. You got to you got to you got to dangle a little bit for people to catch on the podcast. That's it for this great conversation with Tilly Lawless. Tilly's debut novel, Nothing But My Body, is out now from Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you want new Final Draft every week and little bonuses during the week, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to be in touch, we would love to hear from you. Leave us a comment. Leave us a rating. I want to know what you're reading and if you've discovered anything incredible on the podcast. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with another great conversation from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.